Hello, and welcome to our wrap-up podcast for COVID Classroom, a joint project of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette and the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. My name is Rusty Turner, and I'm the editor of the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Over the past six months, our newsrooms have produced an 11-part series on how the coronavirus pandemic affected public schools in Arkansas. We covered a wide range of topics, from how schools and patrons prepared for the year, the challenges they faced with in-school safety protocols and at-home learning, the toll taken on students and teachers working in an unfamiliar environment, the quality of online education, and how successes were achieved under these difficult circumstances. The last installment of our series is due out Sunday, examining the results of a statewide poll we commissioned on how parents think Arkansas schools have performed. The series was produced with the support of the Walton Family Foundation. All the elements of the series, stories, photos, podcasts, videos, and graphics, are available to everyone without a subscription on our websites, ArkansasOnline.com and NWAOnline.com. With me today to discuss what we learned while reporting this series are from the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, editor Eliza Gaines, uh, Metro editor Hunter Field, and reporter Emily Walkenhorst. From the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette, we have myself and reporter Dave Perosic. Before we go on, though, I, I think it's important to acknowledge that dozens of people in both newsrooms had a hand in creating the series and its various elements. A number of reporters worked on parts of this series, while any number of editors and staff helped with refining the package and developing the visual, the visual and audio elements that were included. We also had a few former staff members who worked with us as correspondents and contract editors. To all of them, we are very grateful. Now, I'm sure that when we got started on this project last summer, we all had some notions about how things would go or what we would learn. I'm wondering how those early perceptions changed once the reporting got started. Um, Eliza, we'll start with you. Any thoughts about that? Um, I, there was still some uncertainty about how the year would go. Um, I think I was pleasantly surprised with how well teachers responded to this new way of teaching. Um, not only teaching, you know, through a new medium, but having to come up with different ways to keep kids involved. And um, I was very impressed with, you know, what what we found in our research. Yeah. Hunter, anything that uh, surprised you or, or changed your perception as we went along? Yeah, at the outset, I really thought that the, the State Department of Education would really take a, a proactive um, role in guiding these districts on how to handle such an unprecedented semester. Um, and I think as we went on, we found out that it was so decentralized. Oftentimes we, we'd go to the Department of Education and, you know, we really wouldn't get a lot of answers back. It would, it would be more deferring to individual school districts. And we heard from some school districts that that was a frustration was that they didn't receive, you know, as much guidance as I think they would have liked. Um, but that may have been the right decision because it did give districts a lot of flexibility to kind of um, do, you know, use uh, digital content providers that suited their needs rather than having to use the one the state picked. Um, but I think that was the biggest surprise for me was it was really kind of a every district for itself in a lot of ways. Emily, any thoughts? As um as an outsider, I think it seems like such a tall task to me. Um, 
I think there were a lot of people uh, who were just convinced that schools could not stay open. Um, and I, I think, you know, I, I very much thought that that could happen. It ended up being a lot more, I guess, piecemeal. Um, you know, maybe this, this class needs to quarantine, you know, this school needs to quarantine. It ended up being just, um, you know, not a whole school district shutting down. Um, and then when they did send people home, it was only temporarily. And, and I think I was, you know, maybe anticipating um, some more extreme measures than that, um, but they ended up, you know, just doing everything they could, I think, to keep people in the classroom. And, and so it ended up um, not maybe changing quite as much during the school year as, as I anticipated. Yeah, I, I remember. I, I agree. Go ahead, Eliza. I, I agree with that. I thought that school would be shut down completely by October. Um, I did not think that kids, you know, would keep their masks on. I thought it would spread so quickly, and um, it didn't. So that was that was surprising to me. Yeah, I think. Yeah, how many? Go ahead, Hunter. At the outset, at the outset, I mean, how many times did we say, you know, here in three weeks, this is all going to change because schools are going to be shutting down, and that never really happened. Um, And I think that some people would debate that, you know, more schools. So it should have shut down, but I think it is a credit to the schools that they, you know, when there was a positive case or a suspected case that they, you know, isolated the group of people that were in contact with that and were able to keep the rest of the school open while maybe one grade or one class had to go virtual for a, a couple of weeks. I think that's a, I think that's a really good point. You know, one of the things I think we found was that schools are not really a place where the virus spreads and that a lot of the, the, uh, a lot of the shutdowns that occurred really had less to do with, with um, infection among kids or teachers as, as, as the quarantine rules. So, you know, a, 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 if one person in a class, for example, ended up tested posi- testing positive or, or one member of a faculty at a particular school ended up testing positive, then you ended up with several people quarantining. And, that, and, and while they may never have contracted COVID, they couldn't be at school, so that was the that was the reason that shut schools down was the availability of people, not necessarily an outbreak. So I think that was something that surprised me. But yeah, often during our preparations, we talked about is it going to be four weeks? Is it going to be six weeks? And and the shutdown never happened. So, um, you know, this was uh, Hunter mentioned this earlier. Such a huge story to get our arms around because so many school districts in so many different ways uh, that that schools approached it. So, uh, Dave and Emily, talk a little bit about. Um, how you came up with the sources that you found? How did you uh, how did you find the people who were willing to talk uh, about what was going on and and uh, um, what kind of did did you have to jump through any special hoops to get folks to talk to you? Um, so Dave or Emily, either one. Um, so I I wrote three stories tonight. I pushed them all a little bit differently. Um, the first one was you know, just kind of all of the preparations for school. Um, and through that, you know, I found teachers and others through like professional organizations. Um, I found, um, dis- I talked to districts um, based on, you know, just how big they were, who, um, you know, was referred to me by other professional organizations. I found families through colleagues who knew people who knew people uh, I'm not a parent. I'm fairly young and I have almost no friends with kids. So going through channels of people who know people who know people uh, re- really helped me on that one. 
Um, for my second story about um, attendance, what schools are doing to help kids attend, what challenges kids and families are facing as far as attendance, I started out with a public records request to the largest traditional public and public charter schools for their current and past attendance records, um, just to get an idea of how often kids were showing up during the pandemic compared to before the pandemic. And that's when I found that districts often were not tracking it, but I called those who did track uh, the attendance during pandemic, including North Little Rock. And then I contacted a parent who's been very involved in trying to help families in that district. Um, another parent um, actually contacted us um, because she was just so frustrated um, with, you know, the how she was struggling, how her children were struggling. and. They provided some really good perspective on just what people are struggling with, like both students and families and how this wasn't just, you know, one kid in a classroom, you know, a lot of people were affected by one kid, um, including their parents. Um, for my story on mental health services on uh, K-12 campuses, I had I had a little bit of an advantage there because they had already been looking into mental health services on K-12 campuses. And so I knew some people through that. I had to gain some new sources for that angle, um, people who were um, getting services during the, the pandemic. Because um, many of the people I had spoken with prior to the pandemic, had, they had graduated or maybe they had changed their mind about going public with their stories. But um, a lot of people were still on board. And so I was able to connect with people through that. Um, and, you know, mental health on campuses is very interesting, though, and, and I think there's stories beyond COVID to be told there, and, um, you know, it was just such a wide topic, and, and that's, you know, how you connect with so many different people. Yeah. Dave, I know you did a lot of traveling around the state, and uh, so how did you connect with, uh, with sources you found in, in other communities that we, we don't normally cover on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, well, um, uh, you know, as with any story, sources come through a variety of avenues. Um, you know, some sources, you know, right away, people at the top of organizations like the Department of Ed and the Arkansas Education Association, um, those are the state officials you have to talk to, and they all provide a certain perspective. Um, but we strive for a variety of perspectives, and so we look for teachers, parents, students wanting to share their thoughts with us. Um, and that's easier said than done sometimes. Uh, I can tell you for the story I wrote about the teacher's experience uh, this school year, um, I started by randomly emailing about 30 teachers across the state requesting their input and uh, got a total of three responses, um, only two of which were receptive to my request. Um, but, uh, you know, social media helps me out on more than one occasion. Um, in particular, a couple of education focused groups on Facebook. Uh, in another case, my editor, Lisa Thompson, gave me a couple of names of people to contact for my story on students with disabilities. People she knew were connected to special education and they in turn provided me names of others I should talk to, which led to some good interviews. So um, there's some networking that goes into tracking down good sources, and often it starts with the very people you work with. Okay, interesting. 
Uh, I hadn't heard the random email story. That's uh, that's an interesting approach. So, um, what and and what was the most significant challenge uh, you two you ran into as as you were reporting this story, uh, Dave or Emily? Um, I, the the biggest challenge for me personally was just knowing where to start on some of these stories. Um, because I'm used to doing stories that concern a single school district or just Northwest Arkansas, because that's you know, the region I normally cover. Rarely have I done stories with a statewide scope. So figuring out how to attack the story, where to start and trying to include people from as many parts of the state as possible. I think that was challenge number one for me. Yeah. And secondly, just, finding people willing to talk to me. Uh, I don't have many relationships with people outside Northwest Arkansas, so getting those people in, say, uh, East Arkansas to talk to me could be a little tricky sometimes simply because they don't know me, and they might be hesitant to talk to someone they don't know. So um, I, I'd say just in general, tackling a story from a statewide perspective was the biggest challenge for me, and I um, as you mentioned earlier, I did make the effort uh, with the encouragement of uh, the editors to travel to different parts of the state a few times and and meet people where they were. And, um, you know, again, that was just a, a, often a matter of just cold calling people and saying, hey, Art, would you be willing to talk to me in person and, and then arranging those interviews um, and setting them up uh, in a way that uh, would fit, I could fit them all into uh, a day of travel, a day or two of travel. And and Dave, I'd, I'd point out that all those all those visits you made, you were socially distanced, wearing a mask, taking taking precautions. Uh, uh, as, Absolutely. <laughs> yes. All right, uh, yeah. Emily. What about challenges for you? Well, kind of, you know, it's just going back to the sourcing. Um, that was the biggest challenge for me, just because K-12 is not my beat, and I don't really have a connection with schools through friends or their kids. Um, I think if I could go back and do anything differently, it would be to kind of start out maybe back in August with, like, an engagement campaign from the beginning, um, you know, maybe with, like, other reporters, maybe with, like, the newsroom, social media accounts, um, you know, generating contact forms for parents on different topics. Um, I found in the past that doing that kind of thing, um, you know, involving, like, the newsroom's accounts um, generates a lot of responses. But if it's, you know, just me tweeting, will someone talk to me? And, you know, it's generally not successful. So I think, um, I think if I could go back, I, I would have maybe done that. Um, but, you know, I, I still found... Um, of people from different parts of the state. So I thought they did okay. All right. Um, so I want to ask Eliza and Hunter, uh, as from your perspective as editors, we talked a little bit about what things that surprised us, but was there was that there was there any one thing that that we discovered that was completely the opposite of your expectation, or 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 completely different from your expectation, uh, as far as uh, how the story how these stories played out. So uh, one thing that really surprised me uh, when we did the poll of parents um, was that they were pretty satisfied with the quality of education that 
their children were receiving virtually. Um, it was a, a pretty good amount of parents who said that they were pleased with how their kids were doing in virtual school. And that really did surprise me, but um, I think that speaks to the teachers again. Um, I, just, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, going into this year with virtual learning, uh, you know, and it, it is quite a burden on parents who are working and have kids at school to make sure that they stay engaged, um, you know, in the classroom when they're not actually in the classroom. Um, so that was something that was surprising to me. Yeah. Hunter, how about you? Yeah, I think, um, like Eliza, with some of the poll results, the, the breakdown uh, along racial lines as far as um, which which families were sending their kids to school versus those that weren't. Um, we found that African-American families, uh, a higher rate of, of their children were staying at home and doing online only. Um, and that was that was opposite of what I thought. Um, and, and same with the congressional districts. Um, you know, when you look at the demographics, I, I figured that the lower the lower the income, the more likely that you're to see those kids in school because the parents were much less likely to have a, one of them staying at home that, to help them do the schoolwork because they'd be working. Um, but for the most part, I think I think the poll found that, that it was the opposite. Yeah, that, that, that I think that was the most surprising thing to me was what what you just stated, Hunter, was that the the demographics of the of the um, families who kept their kids at home versus the demographics of, of which kids went to, went to school. So for the editors, what's the one thing you think readers should take from the series? Is there, a, is there one theme or is there one idea that, that our readers ought to, uh, ought to take from this, uh, um, this series? Uh, I hope people realize how much kids rely on school for things other than their education. And we have a lot of stories related to this. Um, we've heard that kids feel isolated because they're not able to socialize. They aren't exercising because they don't have PE classes. Um, you know, a lot of kids maybe don't have a great home life, and school is where they can get counseling or talk to a trusted adult. And for a lot of them, it's where they get most of their meals. Um, so I think a, a big takeaway is, you know, how much kids rely on school, um, not just for learning, but for other resources. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I think that's a very important point. Um, Hunter, any thoughts? Yeah, for me, I think people should take away that the, the impact um, of such a bizarre school year is going to be is going to stretch out so far into the future. Um, you know, because there's not a ton of research, as Dave reported in one of his first stories out there about you know how how kids respond to strictly virtual learning, and most of the research there is is it's not as it's not great. And so we had such an uptick in kids learning online. What's what are what what's that going to do for their uh, academic futures? How long are the are those residual effects going to be there? Uh, last spring, we weren't able to do all of the testing that we usually do and the assessments to know where the kids are at. Um, and and I don't think we have a, a full picture of to what extent we're going to be able to do those tests this spring. Um, so I think the impact of of you know having education during a pandemic is just it's going to stretch on for years into the future um and then like eliza said just beyond that you know people like emily who have, who have really studied uh mental health in school 
and people who are in education, you know, they've been saying for years that, you know, the kids get so such a broad array of services through school, not just education. I think the pandemic has only highlighted that even more. You know, it is stories like Eliza mentioned about hunger, um, about child abuse. Um, you know, schools are just public schools, especially are such a, a safety net for so many issues that kids face. Um, and I think that, that this this semester has only um, underscored that even more. Yeah. Um, Emily, any thoughts on uh, on on that? Yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, that was kind of my biggest takeaway from this and, and maybe what I, uh, you know, would assume readers would take away from this, too, is, you know, that not just that schools are a place of receiving all of those things, um, but, you know, that kids are so many kids are struggling. Um, they're struggling at home. They're struggling to pass their classes. They're struggling to attend school. Um, but also, especially now, the schools and the teachers are overwhelmed, too. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think kind of the biggest thing I took away is just knowing that, you know, just understanding a bit of how much kids need um, and help and support, um, not just from schools, but um, just maybe more help and support than perhaps they've been able to get in some places. Um, and obviously schools play such a big role in that. Um, but I think, you know, this kind of gives us more of a perspective on, you know, how big of a role that really is. Dave, anything you want to add? Well, one of the things I think we've observed this whole semester is a, a growing divide between those who, um, you know, believe that schools should be uh, all close to in-person learning um, versus those who um, are, are certainly not of that notion. Um, and, you know, there, there are a lot of, we, we've seen teachers and others, educators die of COVID and there is a, a valid argument for, for, you know, keeping schools entirely virtual, um, and during a pandemic, um, on the other hand, um, if you do that, you have, uh, uh, students who are going to uh, suffer because of that. Uh, you know, virtual is obviously not for every student, um, or at least a lot of students do not thrive in virtual settings. So, um, especially uh, special education students, and and so um, this debate is, I think, you know, is. I don't think it's ever going to be resolved, um, uh, but it's it's one that's going to probably carry on uh, past the far past uh, uh, this the time this pandemic is over. You know, one of the things I think is going to be interesting is to see how school uh, is conducted in the future, uh, based on what school districts and patrons and uh, and, and, and parents have learned this year, um, you know, for example, uh, every school, every teacher was prepared at some point to sw switch from 
in school learning to to virtual learning, and and I think that's some that that kind of flexibility is probably going to be built in uh, going forward uh, in in all classes, um, and it will affect more than just you know this this pandemic kind of situation. It will affect weather days or delays if if there's uh, you know, if there's a, a a problem with uh, with heating at school or if the if if there's a leak in the roof uh, that this ability to transition to to a day or two of of at home learning is going to be something that we're going to see going forward in, in in schools. So I think there's some there's some lessons to be taken from what what school districts have learned about how they operate their schools uh, that can be beneficial going forward. So. Um, well, we're wrapping up here. Does anybody else have any thoughts, any, anything they want to offer uh, to our readers about what they should be looking for uh, uh, as far as impact of, of, of uh, this last, this strange school year? I'm just really proud of everybody who contributed to this project. And I think that people will be able to look back in 10 years at this project and really get a feel for what it was like to be a teacher or a student or a parent of a student in 2020 so they they did a great job yeah i agree i um, i'm very proud of it as well and i'm pleased our newsroom because newsrooms could work together so well and uh, and i mentioned this in the intro but i also want to to uh offer our thanks to the walton family foundation who who supported this project and allowed this uh all of this content to be available on our websites uh to to subscribers and non-subscribers alike uh, so that they could get the benefit of our of our reporting and work, and uh, for anybody who's who who wants to see uh, see the body of work of this series, it's available again on our websites at arkansasonline.com and in waonline.com. So, um, uh, last chance, folks. If anybody's got, unless somebody's got something else to say, I'll sign off. Um, uh, to our listeners, I'll thank you once again for joining us on this podcast for the COVID classroom series. And don't forget, our content is available on our websites. If you'd like to review it or, or read it for the first time, we're we're pleased to to have it there for your for your uh, edification. Uh, most of all, thank you for supporting local newspapers and local journalism. Um, and with that, we'll sign off. Have a great day. <laughs>